Bibles and go with me back to 1 John chapter 3 this morning. 1 John 3. While you're turning there, I'll call to your attention one of those scary, humbling realities of life. Often it's said this way, more is caught than is taught. That there's all kinds of things we can talk about, uh, but really how we, how we live them out is the greater teacher. Um, we learn certainly both by instruction and by illustration, but often it's the illustration that matters more to us. You can go to work or you can live in your neighborhood and say, well, I'm a Christian and a Christian is, and you can begin to teach and to explain, and you should. But how you live is going to weigh into that far more than just what you and I say. Uh, this really comes to bear for those who are parents or maybe have been parents in the room, and you begin to realize that the way that you communicate becomes an example for how your children communicate. And sometimes that's a good lesson. Sometimes that's a bad lesson, which I guess is maybe then a good lesson for you in hindsight. I don't know. Um, you teach them, hey, here's what marriage looks like. Here's what love looks like. Uh, Dad, if your children are like you, what does that mean? Because again, it doesn't matter if we're in work talking about uh, the example of our work ethic or our integrity, we're teaching by our example. Or we're at home or we're in our neighborhood, everywhere we go, the way that we are living is teaching those around us. And I believe both last week and even more so this week, the Apostle John being inspired by the Spirit of God brings that reality out in the text of Scripture here in 1 John 3 to say, here are bad examples and good examples when it comes to love. The text in front of us this morning, we could really just title it this way, Love Defined. Love Defined. Defined. If you would remember with me where we've been in recent weeks, uh, John has been explaining to us that how we live indicates what family we belong to. And he paints a very stark contrast to go, here's what the family of God should look like, and here's what the family of the devil looks like. like he doesn't paint a whole lot of middle ground there. He's very black and white in his presentation. Family of God or family of the devil. And he begins to talk about the habitual manner in which we live, not just like an occasional failure, but regularly, consistently, how are you living? And he touches on two very important truths that often in our frailty, kind of our humanity, we err to one side or the other. He says, you need to be holy and you need to be loving. Or maybe the way the text says it to be clearer to us is, you need to do righteousness and you need to love your brother. It's not one or the other. It's both. It's, it's not going, well, you know, by personality, I'm just, I'm a prophet, I'm a truth teller, I, I'm just say it like it is. I stand for right, but I don't have love. Nor on the other hand does he say, well, you know what, if you're a tolerant, patient, loving individual, you can kind of push meeting God's standard and holiness aside. 
He says, here's how you know the children of God and the children of the devil. It's about doing righteousness and loving those around you. And he's continued now on this theme, particularly with a focus on love, because he tells us, even where we left off last week, that it is an indicator of our eternal life with God. That by showing love to others, it gives assurance to us of our salvation. In fact, not this week, Lord willing, next week, we'll see that theme come back to in the text in 1 John 3, 19 and following. The text in front of us this morning is 1 John 3, verses 16 to 18, as we look at this idea of love defined. We start in a wonderful place, we'll say it this way, love defined by the perfect illustration. Love defined by the perfect illustration. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life us. Remember, more is caught than is taught. We can say, in fact, we've said it, that God loves you. 1 John 3, 1, we've read it over and over. Behold, look, see what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. We can instruct that truth. Now we're reminded of the supreme, perfect illustration of that truth to go, here's what love looks like. He laid down his life for us. What an example. Which again, we'll make application as we work our way through. But for every Christian here, whether in your home, your marriage, your parenting, your work, your neighborhood, just going through life, keep in mind that this illustration, this definition of love is to shape how I live and how you live. This is not simply to make us go, well, God has loved me. He has. But to go, so now do I love that way? And not let myself off the hook and go, well, you know, I define and I look at love like this. Like We live in a culture that likes to take things that God has defined in his word and go, the definition's completely up for grabs. What do you think about it? What do you think about it? In this text, here's love defined first by the perfect illustration. As we look at this truth in verse 16, notice with me first, the illustration is the source of knowledge. The illustration is the source of knowledge. Hereby perceive we the love of God. This word perceive is one that we've encountered in a number of New Testament texts before. The word perceived is a common word in the Greek New Testament for knowledge by experience. Knowledge by experience. We're getting ready to wrap up another school year at Westchester Christian School, and there are things that get taught in the classroom, and you're like, okay, my teacher tells me I need to know this, I'm going to tuck this away, but right now I'm not sure I understand it. There are other things where you go, yeah, actually, I really see how that works. Like, wow, I get it, light bulb there. But you know, there are lots of things we go through in life where it's like, you know, my mom always said, and I didn't know for sure if I agreed, but now I get it, because experience is teaching you that that was true. We move from knowledge to understanding, we could say. That's this word perceive. Here's how we know God's love by experience, to realize this illustration of what he has done. He gave his life for us. Here's what love looks like, we could say. 
Now you'll notice with me, if you look at the text, depending on the, uh, the Bible translation you're carrying, the words of God are in italics. In other words, the translators of King James Version said, let's add those in hopes of adding clarity. They're not represented in the original languages. I happen to believe better clarity, better understanding is just leaving them off, right? Because if we read it that way, the way the Greek texts read, it says, hereby perceive we love. So in other words, this is not just helping you understand God's love. This is helping you understand love as a whole. Because really, all love is God's love, because God is love, 1 John 4, verse 8. We'll get there eventually. Here's how you know love. Like, how do you best learn love, period? Look at what Jesus did for you. That's how you best learn love. It's a wonderful truth. Here's how you can know. Here's the illustration that provides the source of knowledge. Like, if we just went out and said, you know what, today let's go into downtown Westchester, let's just meet people on the street and go, hey, can you tell me what love is? We get a lot of different definitions. And if you're a Christian, when it comes to how do you know what love is, what we should say, the only way that I know what love is is because of what God has done for me through Jesus Christ. That's how I know what love is. The word for love here is agape love. It's that word that speaks of a choice to selflessly, sacrificially do what's best for someone else. That's what God did for us through Jesus Christ. To go, here's how I know by experience love because he laid down his life for us. The illustration is the source of knowledge, but secondly, the illustration is, obviously, the sacrifice of Jesus. It's the sacrifice of Jesus. I want us to make three simple, brief observations here at the beginning of verse 16. One, his sacrifice was voluntary. His sacrifice was voluntary. Not constrained, not demanded, not begrudging, he laid down his life for us. He chose to do this, which again, by implication and application, which we'll get to more in a moment, means if I'm going to love, I need to be voluntary, not like constrained, manipulated, begrudging, but chosen voluntarily to go, I want to do what's best for you. I want to serve you. Because that's what Christ did for me. His sacrifice is clearly voluntary. Consider with me again, we looked at these not too long ago celebrating the Lord's table, I think around Good Friday. But in John chapter 10, Jesus is teaching, it's that passage where he refers to himself as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And in John 10 verse 17, Jesus said, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life that I might take it again. And so that we're really clear, here's what he says in verse 18. Jesus says, No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. You can fast forward to John 19.30 as Jesus is on the cross. He receives vinegar. He says those familiar words, it is finished. And then the text says he bowed down his head and, and gave up the ghost. He surrendered his life. What an incredible sacrifice in that he voluntarily died for me and for you. 
That's instructive as to how I'm supposed to love. That's instructive as to how all believers are supposed to love. Love is defined by the perfect illustration, particularly the sacrifice of Jesus. And again, first, understand that sacrifice was voluntary. Secondly, that sacrifice was costly. I won't spend a lot of time here because it's obvious and we've already touched it a little bit. But it says he laid down his life. It cost him everything. It was humbling enough for him to lay aside eternity in heaven for a time to become a man, to humble himself, to become obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. To go, you know what, for those who are sinners, those who are rebels, he's going to give his life. He's going to voluntarily surrender it all. We often settle for such a low, cheap view of love. Sometimes keeping track almost like a score. Well, they did this, and so I'll do that, and well, they didn't, so I'm not going to. You know what, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He gave his life. It cost him everything. And so it is but my reasonable service. It is but my delight to say, I will live for him who died for me. I will seek to love and give and spend and be spent for those around me. His sacrifice was voluntary. His sacrifice was costly. And then third, certainly his sacrifice was substitutionary. He laid down his life so that he might win us. Right? His, no, it's for us. On our behalf is the idea of the preposition that's used. He laid down his life on our behalf. He did this in my place and in your place. It was substitutionary. What an incredible love. What an incredible sacrifice. I mean, we just came through... This past week, the celebration of an important holiday in America, right? Memorial Day. To pause and to go, you know what? Praise God for those who gave their lives fighting for freedoms that we enjoy. Certainly worth honoring. And yet, when we come to a text like this, I would remind us that what Jesus did was not dying for simply a noble cause. He was actually giving his life for his enemies, right? Like, that's unthinkable. He's giving his life for his enemies. I think Romans chapter 5 gives this contrast very well when in verse, end of verse 6, it says, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Like, sometimes we think too highly of ourselves. Like, well, yeah, Christ died for us. Because he loved me, and he did, but he loved me when there was nothing to love. In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure, a good man, for a good man, some would even dare to die. Like some people go, you know what, they're a good person. This is a good cause. But then the text changes there in Romans 5, 8 in that familiar verse. But God commended, showed us his love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Love is defined by this perfect, superior illustration in the sacrifice of Jesus. It was voluntary. It was costly. It was substitutionary. As we continue on in verse 16, though, we want to move from seeing love defined by the perfect illustration to secondly, love defined through personal application. 
love defined through personal application. Because then, as the Spirit of God so wonderfully does, he just takes the camera and turns it, or takes the finger and turns and points it and says, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So we move from that feel-good moment of, wow, God loves me, to this call to go now, do the same for those around you. See, love is defined, yes, by the perfect illustration, but you and I, as we go through life, if you're a Christian, are defining love for those around you. And how you work, and how you talk, to your neighbors, to your spouse, to your children, in every relationship you have, within your church family, you're defining love. And we've been called, like, I often bring this up because it's such a challenge for me to go, hey, husbands, remember, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And that is a huge calling for husbands. Realize this text is telling all Christians, all Christians, male and female, we ought also to lay down our lives for the brethren. To go Okay, through personal application, it's, notice the similarities. Like We probably don't need to spend a lot of time here. But in the personal application, number one, it's voluntary. We ought to lay down, like same call, costly, our lives. And it's substitutionary for the brethren. Not so they'll love you back and your needs will be met and you'll be cared for it. If you just got to look out for yourself, none of that's there. He did this for you, so you go and do this for others. Does this apply to your family? Yes, but does it transcend just your family? Absolutely, yes. Does this apply to your good, close friends? Yes, but does it transcend just your close friends? Absolutely, it's a call to love all brothers, all believers. So I would ask you, do you voluntarily love all those around you. What about when it's hard? Some of us are hard to love sometimes. Us, me, I'll include myself. Some of you, maybe not. You're great. You're easy. But some of us are really hard to love sometimes. Are you willing to lay down your life for that person who's hard to love or in that time when it's hard to love? Right? I think I go back to that example of more is caught than is taught. Like, Parents get this. It's like, man, I was so exhausted. It was such a hard day, and there were these big problems. And I, I know I shouldn't have talked that way, but like, if they would just understand what I was going through. And it's like, well, too late. The words already went out. The attitude was already shown. You already gave a very bad example. And you can apologize and praise God. Kids are wonderfully forgiving. But there are moments where it's hard. But we are called to voluntarily sacrificially, substitutionarily love those around us, laying down our lives for the brethren. Do you struggle to give a kind word of encouragement as opposed to criticism or judgment? Do you struggle to give up your time because your schedule is just so full that I got to get this done and I got this, 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 instead of going, you know what? They need my time. The talents that God's given you, you go, you know what? To go, hey, I'm going to help meet this need. Jesus set the bar. He set the example. But I would also remind you very briefly 
that in the New Testament, we hit example after example of people who are doing this. I'm not gonna take the time to go there, but I'd encourage you to write down Philippians 2, 25 to 30, and look at the example of Epaphroditus, who for in his ministry was sick nigh unto death because he wanted to minister to the Philippian believers. He's a wonderful example. One of my favorite texts along these lines is so challenging to me is the Apostle Paul's testimony in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. The Corinthians. The Corinthians, right? Those who take each other to court. Those who are tolerating known incest in their midst. Those who are arguing about who baptized them. Or, hey, I have this spiritual gift. What spiritual gift do you have? The Corinthians. Paul says this to them. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 15. And I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. Like, that's a mind-blowing verse, right? Paul's like, I'm happy to do it. I'm going to serve. I'm going to spend to the end. I'm going to be spent. And as I do, I already know, you're not going to like it. It's going to make you dislike me more. Most of us, if we sign up for that kind of ministry, after week one, we're out. Like, I tried. You know what they did? And Paul's like, I'm very glad to spend and be spent for you, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I'd be loved. We're following the example of Jesus. We perceived his love in that Christ died for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Love is defined first by perfect illustration, second through personal application, third in a problematic situation. In a problematic situation. John here presents a negative situation using a rhetorical question that helps us further understand what love looks like. In fact, it challenges us to go, do I love like Jesus loves? He says in verse 17, Whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? Notice first, in the situation that we're presented, there's an ability to help. There is an ability to help. Whoso hath this world's good. They have the resources. They could help. You know, for sake of application for us, it could be material possessions. It could be a talent. It could be time. Let's go, well, you know what? There's the resources. There's an ability to help. By the way, don't let yourself off the hook too quick here. Go, well, I don't have time. I don't have resources. Like a really good, another parallel text to read to kind of build this out for us is 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is where Paul is writing to the Corinthian church. And he's telling them again, there are saints in Jerusalem who need your help. You said you were going to give. You haven't given yet. They're going through a famine. I don't know if you remember there at the beginning of 2 Corinthians 8 who the example is that Paul directs the Corinthians to think about. But he says, we, we're going to tell you about, we want you to think about the churches of Macedonia who in deep poverty abounded in their liberality. They're in poverty, but they gave abundantly. And then he points to the example of Jesus, who though he were rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his uh, riches, through his grace, might be made rich. It's like, look, 
the Macedonians are in poverty and they gave abundantly. So we want to be careful not to too quickly read this and go, well, there we go, ability. I don't have ability. I'm good. So notice first, there's an ability to help with the need. Secondly, there's awareness of the need. He sees his brother have need. There's no question here. He's seen it. Do you ever have the Holy Spirit pull on your heart and go, you know, maybe you ought to help with that? Maybe it's a formal like ministry thing at church. Maybe it's an individual need. Maybe it's just simply a word of encouragement. Maybe it's like, you know, I haven't seen them in a while. I just want to check in. You ever felt the Holy Spirit just kind of prompt you? And you're like, all of a sudden, like logic starts kicking in and excuse maker starts to kick in. And you're like, yeah, but, 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 well, maybe, but, but, but. And you've reasoned, you're trying to reason away this good thing that God's just prompted you with. Don't do that. And I have to imagine there's probably some who are like, no, pastor, I have no idea what you're talking about. Well, that might be the other side of the issue. That's like, take your eyes off your own problems, your own concerns. Say, God, would you just help me see? Because if you're with people, there are always needs. Even if it looks like everything's good, there are always needs. So in the text, person has ability they have awareness of the need. They're not selfish. They're not insensitive. They have awareness of the need. But then third, notice the action of rejection. There's the ability to help, the awareness of the need, and the action of rejection. He takes his heart. It's the idea of the concept within the New Testament, ancient years of bowels to go, you know what? My heart, my inside is just not going to respond. I'm going to close that off. Which unfortunately, again, we're way too comfortable often doing, going, nope, I shut that part of me off. I shut that part of me off. I shut that part of me off. No, no, like, don't do that. It's not just here an issue of inactivity, that he didn't do something. It was a choice to close his heart to love. Again, when God allows us to see a need, he's equipped us to meet that need. We're going to make a decision in some way, perhaps to lovingly meet the need. And while we might not want to say it this way, reality is perhaps we're just closing off our heart and going, no, I won't love like God loved me. I won't do it. That's the challenge we're given here. And posed by this rhetorical question, the answer is clear. How does God's love dwell in that? Can someone really do that, having experienced the love of God? The answer is no. It's clearly given by the next verse, which we'll touch briefly and come back to as we build out the thoughts going into verse 19 next week. We've seen love defined first by perfect illustration, second through personal application, third in this problematic situation, and fourth, love is defined by our proactive action. Love is defined by our proactive action. My little children, you remember this? This is John, again, grabbing the sides of our face, saying, look me in the eyes. My little children, he's speaking lovingly, but calling for their very clear attention. Let us not love in word and in tongue, but indeed in truth. We were to say it maybe in modern-day vernacular, talk is cheap. Oh, yeah, I love my church family. 
I love the brothers and sisters in Christ. I love it when we get together. That's good. How does it change what you do? Because love is defined not simply by what we say, because more is caught than is taught. Love is defined by proactive action, by deed and reality, we might say. In other words, counter much of what the world would say, love is not just an attitude, it's an action. It's not just emotion, it's proactivity. It's sacrifice. To go, here's what I'm going to do. We could add all kinds of verbs after the word love. Love gives, love acts, love speaks, love encourages, love helps, love prays. Because love does. It runs to help, to serve, to be used. It's my prayer as we work through this text that two things would happen for every Christian here. One, you would rejoice in the love that God has shown to you. Here's how you know by experience love. Christ laid down his life for you. That's amazing. And then second, not just to rejoice in the love that God has shown you through Christ, but to turn and to look at everyone around you in every opportunity, at home, at church, and go, how can I love those around me the way Jesus loved me? Let's pray. Father, once again, it is such a humbling thought to realize the love that you have shown to us through Jesus Christ and his wonderful love in being willing to submit to your plan, to become a man, to live a perfect life, to die an excruciating death, to pay for my sin as your enemy. To not just limit that, that love, but to love the entire world in that manner. Lord, it's also incredibly humbling and daunting to realize then that because I've experienced that love, I'm called, we're called to lay down our lives as well. Lord, I pray for each believer here that you would take this text and work in our hearts to help us see where our love needs to grow. God, I well understand we're, we need your grace to do that. We need your grace to lift our eyes off of ourselves and our own concerns, to overcome our selfishness. We need your grace to enable us when we're tired, we're weak, we don't feel that we know what to say, to reach out and to love and to serve anyway, knowing that you have so wonderfully and graciously loved us. We do thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.